Kat Woods, it's great to have you on the podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. How about you? Thank you for having me. Very well. I'm glad I got to book you. You're very busy. You, uh, you went to <laughs> Turkey and now you're in Portugal. You're a world traveler. So very thankful to have you on. Yeah, no. Um, yeah. Traveling all the time is great. And I have good internet. So that's always exciting. I am amazed that you managed to accomplish so much while traveling. Um, so yeah, it's an interesting thing of whether traveling makes me more or less productive. Um, I, I think that, I mean, I'm not traveling because it makes me productive. I'm definitely doing this because like I enjoy it and why not? Um, but, uh, I actually think for me, I'm like super, super high on openness to experience and I'm pretty high on extroversion as well. And extroversion, like one of the symptoms is often like being like sensation seeking. And so I actually think for me, it gives me more energy. Um, and that, uh, one of my like biggest potential ways that I have way less impact in my life is that I burn out. Um, mm. and that one of the things that causes me to burn out is not working too hard, but being too bored. Mm. Um, and then having to do things I find really boring all the time. And like right now, even if I'm doing the most boring task ever, I can just like look up and I'll be looking at like, you know, like this beautiful town on like some Portuguese river or, you know, um, like, you know, looking at Hittite castles in Turkey or something. And that'll give me energy, which then I can use to like, you know, help the world hopefully. Yeah. And just so the audience knows, Kat Woods is no stranger to being productive and having impact on the world. She has started four <laughs> charities uh, and has had, and those charities have had passive impact, which I want to get into later, but they've done some really amazing things. You've, um, you've vaccinated, not you personally have vaccinated 200,000 children, yeah. but your charities <laughs> working uh, that you have co-founded have vaccinated 200,000 children. You have um, incubated many other charities that have gone on to do incredible things. If you um, if you want to check out Jack Rafferty's podcast uh, on my channel, he was sponsored by one of Kat's companies and he has helped to eliminate lead in Malawi, saving like 200,000 children that are alive today from brain damage and many more in the future. So uh, yeah, it's incredible what you've done. I'm so fascinated by how you managed to say so high impact for, for the last decade. Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting question. Um... I do think, yeah, like, I mean, um, so the biggest thing, actually, I mean, like, I will just jump into the passive impact because I do feel like that's actually like the underlying thing is sometimes people say like, how do you do so much? And I'm like, I actually am not super individually productive. I think a lot of people tend to imagine me as like, oh, I wake up at 5 a.m. I like exercise tons, meditate, and then like I work for like 14 hours and then like I go to sleep or whatever. And that's what I've been doing for the last 10 years. And I did do that for the first year. That did not last. <laughs> um but interestingly, I actually think I could still do it. I would still do it. It's just that like my, my confidence about, like, I think that when I was younger, I was like, oh, this thing will definitely save the entire world or like, you know, save all the children or whatever, whatever the, the, the thing was at the time. And then, uh, you know, I would work super hard, blood some tears, and then a study would come back or a, um, uh, like a new crucial consideration would come in. It would be like, no, no, all that impact you thought you were having, not really. And so, so now I'm just like, eventually it's got to the point. I'm like, I can't do like these crazy hours if like I have this low certainty and I'm still working. Like I still work hard, but like, well, I work like regular amounts essentially. Um, and, uh, but, but the thing is, is that like, so you can still have tons of impact because you don't have to use your own hours to have impact. Like I think that basically, um, you can take every business book ever. And if you just replace the word profit with impact, you can just like port over most of those lessons into EA. And um, like a huge thing is like, yeah, like if you're a super wealthy person, it's not like you're necessarily doing, you don't, you can't be doing all that work. 
right? You have to be delegating, creating the organizations. That was like one of my first things like that I realized is like, oh, hey, I can like hire people. Amazing. And I don't have to do it. Other people can do it. <laughs> it's so much better. Um, and then and then from there, you can be like, okay, I can like, um, my, uh, my stepdad gave me the four hour work week when I um, uh, graduated high school. And that was like, the best thing he could have done for me. Yeah. That was just amazing. Um, and I was like, oh yeah, like this is silly to get like jobs. And still like my backup careers or whatever, if like this doesn't work out for whatever reason, it's like, I just want to go and, like set up other path, like passive income streams instead of like yeah. fundraising. Um, and uh, yeah, like you can basically set up things to continue to work without you. So like, yeah, like Cherry Science Health, um, uh, which um, it hasn't actually vaccinated 200, over 200,000 families. What it's done is like helped families get vaccinations. Anyways, it's like more more complicated, but um, uh, the, like they're still running because like the, the organization was set up and like it's still going and doing stuff. And like, I'm not involved at all anymore. And same with uh, charity entrepreneurship. And then that's like even more passive impact, right? Because it's like, okay, I helped start an uh, incubator which helps start charities. And then all those charities continue to run in the background without like ongoing engagement. But then I also step back from charity entrepreneurship. So I don't even have to incubate these things. Like I never, I never interacted with Jack Rafferty. Mm -hmm. I did um, talk to him at a conference and um, I have no idea if that contributed. But anyways, um, like I, like I can just like, this is all happening in the background. I'm not having to do anything. While this podcast is happening, there's like impact happening in the background, mm -hmm. which is just fantastic, right? And that. If you, if you keep an eye out for those sorts of things and build it accordingly. So like, um, one of the things I actually think is, um, so originally in EA, there's this idea of counterfactuals, of oh, like what would have happened otherwise? Like if I, if I, um, am a doctor, what would have happened otherwise? Right. Mm -hmm. And that's like the counterfactual and early on in the movement, it was not called counterfactuals. It was called replaceability. Mm -hmm. Like how replaceable are you? Mm -hmm. And, um, I can see why we changed that because it kind of sounds sad to be like, oh, I'm like replaceable. That's not great. Yeah. Um, but I see it as fantastic. I'm like, I don't want to keep working. No. I'm like fundamentally much more of a lazy person. Like I don't want to be working. I just want good things to happen. Mm -hmm. And I would like, so I always try and design my organizations right from the get-go that I am going to replace myself mm. and step back. And that just allows you to do way, way more. Um, and so that's like, it's more of the work smart, not hard mentality. Mm -hmm. um, that's what I really try and do. And of course, like the thing is, it's also hard to work smart, but like, I do think there's a bunch of things that you can do. And obviously not everybody can do passive impact. If everybody did it, then it wouldn't work. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but also not everybody's going to do it. So there you go. Yeah. Um, heck, I'm going to try and promote this a whole bunch and I guarantee that almost nobody's going to use it. So like <laughs> perfect, yeah, it's, perfect it's, for all the people who want to. It's just like, not everyone is, is cut out to start a business. Like everyone has their own roles in life. But if you are the sort of entrepreneur who, who would work in startups, but desperately wants to work in EA or charities, then this is maybe the, the route for you to take. It's yeah. It, it doesn't have to be for everyone. Um, so you started your first company at the eight around 18. Is that, is that correct? Your first uh, charity? Um, no, no, I was, uh, how old was I? I was 23. Oh, 23. Oh, um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, whatever. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, um, yeah, that was uh charity science, mm -hmm. um, way back when, and, um, that was, uh, to like back then I was into near termist pause areas. So this mm -hmm. was, um, you know, animal rights, poverty. And what we were doing is we we're just trying to get more money, um, into, uh, like effective giving. Right. So like we basically 
ran fundraisers and everything. And we're trying to get people from outside of the movement to like learn about these like evidence-based charities and then donate and stuff. Um, and that was really cool because, um, Basically, uh, with fundraising, the cool thing is, is that like your main metric is like, how many dollars did you raise per how much did you spend? Mm -hmm. And we got like, I forget if it was six or nine, like, I think it was nine, $9 for every $1 we spent. Mm. Um, and like counterfactually adjusted, which is like really important because otherwise like, it's really easy to get like crazy numbers, but like they would have donated anyways. Adjust? Oh, sorry. It's like, um, uh, so say somebody was going to donate to AMF anyways. Mm -hmm. Um, okay, yeah. you don't want to count those. You want to adjust for the counterfactuals of like, they would have donated anyways. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. Um, so that was, yeah. What was it like at 23 to start your own charity? I mean, that's still incredibly young. Um, I don't, I didn't feel like I was young. I feel like I've been in my thirties since I was about 22. Like, <laughs> Um, and uh, I feel like when I finally hit 30, I'm like, finally, my age, external age <laughs> reflects up. my internal state. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And I feel like, I feel like I've just had a lot of, it's weird because yeah, for the longest time, I was actually like quite low confidence in many ways, but I also had very strong self-efficacy. I don't know what was going on there. I think those are like kind of like two, two separate things, but I was like, oh, well, obviously I can do this. It's just a matter of like, does it work? And so I just tried and like, maybe it was even better to do it. Well, is it better to do it younger or earlier? It was better in the sense I had way more energy back then. Mm -hmm. So like I was just really able to go, go nuts and everything. And, um, and also I hadn't like, you know, I was still used to like living like a, as a college student or whatever. And so it was really easy to just live off of nothing. I think like a lot of, um, especially nowadays with EA, like just having a lot more funding available, people are like, oh, I can't really start something unless I have some crazy amount of money to start with. Mm -hmm. And I'm all like our first year, um, we had, we raised $12,000 for the whole year for two people. And, wow. and that was fine. Right. Like, I mean, it yeah. wasn't like, you know, like I, I prefer to have more money, honestly, it's much better now, but <laughs> starting and this is like why like you know unpaid internships exist too it's a kind of a similar reasoning of like hey you're this new person people don't know like you don't have any track record um people don't really want to like take this risk on you they're like oh if we, if we give you money like who knows right but if it's a really small amount they're like oh you just want twelve thousand dollars sure right like that doesn't seem like that much yeah um and and then you can prove yourself and then you can fundraise more later and so it's good to be able to like start small and then be able to to bootstrap in that mm. What did you do with the twelve thousand dollars? Uh, I mean, <laughs> just like it's food a, and rent. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was it. That was pretty much it. We didn't really have any other expenses except for like, like you know, like a little website and everything. Oh, you mean twelve thousand dollars as a wage? Oh, I thought you meant twelve thousand dollars for the charity. Okay, I see. Yeah. Oh, 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 yeah. No, we raised from that. We raised like I forget how much we raised. Um, uh, it depends on how you count it, but yeah somewhere in like, you know, um, well, technically actually our first thing, and this is actually one of those things of like work smart, not hard is one of the first things that we raised. And we didn't even count this in the nine to one ratio, which we really should have is, um, uh, so back then in animal welfare, one of the biggest things was that we thought was the most impactful was, uh, at, um, having people look at leaflets or like videos of, you know, um, factory farming. And, uh, 
what we discovered is that there's a uh, thing called the Google, Ga uh, Google Grants Program. And what it does is it gives to any registered charity, it gives you $100,000 a year's worth of Google ads. Uh, wow. For free. Okay. Yeah. And it's really easy to apply. And so we we're like, oh, well, we should just go and make sure all of the animal rights organizations know about this and just get them to start advertising for like this like thing that we found was evidence-based and worked it, right? So like, I forget what it was, it was like $400,000 worth of advertising budget, like, you know, with like, I don't know, like 10 hours of effort or something. So yeah, yeah pretty great. Massively yeah. outsized returns. Yeah. Yeah. Which by the way, I'll, I'll also, yeah, hope other people are listening to this and like realize it's so easy to get. It's like, it's like the easiest application form ever. Um, yeah. So yeah, more people should know. It seems like you spend a lot of your time searching for outsized returns, searching for, you know, spending 10 hours to make a hundred thousand dollars or something like that. Um, what other areas uh, do you, do you do this in? Um, uh, hmm, what are other things? So it's like, so I actually feel like it's less about outsized returns and more, it's about the passivity. It's like, oh, hey, what are things I can do to set up so that they are just continue to work in the background? Mm -hmm. um, so uh, funnily enough, I actually did this with fashion and looks. So for the longest time, I was like, just like your very typical nerd. I was like, um, as a teenager, I was, not only was I like, not caring about fashion, I was actively against <laughs> part of my identity. <laughs> and, uh, and like, I just put like zero effort in. I wore like, you know, baggy men's like, you know, t-shirt and like, you know, like cargo pants and, um, you know, socks and sandals, the whole, the whole nice. thing. Nice. Um, and, uh, um, <laughs> yeah. And then, and then basically, um, I mean, there was like a long thing. One thing as I realized like, oh, Hey, like, you know, um, basically like, um, you looking better, not only makes like, it, it's not about like, you know, like there's like a certain form of it that I'm still like, oh, this is still definitely not me. Like, I really don't care. I'm like, oh, it's so boring. Like I have to, I have to force myself to go grocery, like go uh, shopping, um, once every like year and a half or something like fine, everything's falling apart. I need new clothes. Yep. Um, but, uh, but I realized it's like, oh, but if, if you want to have the most impact actually, um, looking better a lot, like basically you just have like that halo effect. People are more likely to like, want to do the things that you want them like to do. And like, you know, generally that's neutral. And in this case, it's like, oh, well, we're trying to like save the world or like, you know, help, help animals or children. And this seems like good. This is like not that large of a sacrifice. And then the other thing was, okay. So like, first I realized, okay, it's valuable. Right. And the second thing is I realized I could make it passive. Um, so like, there's just like all sorts of things that you can do for like, so, um, I tended to think of like, oh, like, like I just set up my wardrobe so that it's dead simple. I just spend like a little bit of time once a year going and actually getting the clothing. And then I don't have to care about clothing anymore at all. It's just like default there. I set up everything to match with everything. Mm -hmm. So I don't ever have to think about it. Um, I actually usually, um, for example, I spend a whole bunch of time trying to think about what to do with my hair. Cause my hair just like, doesn't do anything. And then I realize I'm like, Oh, actually, so usually I'm just wearing a hat. I took it off. Like this is, yep. this is me doing my hair. Like today I brushed my hair and didn't put a hat on. <laughs> <laughs> I resonate with so much of this. It's uh, it's like you were talking about me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because like you don't actually have to put in tons of effort. There's like a bunch of just like simple things that you can do that like make it just like get way more um, uh, yeah, passive. I'm trying to think of other things I do that are passive. 
Um, well, the other well, thing I spent a lot of time on. Mm-hmm. Oh, go ahead. Oh well, one thing I was thinking about was um, actually you wrote an article on hiring and how, like, for instance, if you learn how to hire really well, you can you spend I don't know a hundred hours learning to hire or maybe far fewer, and then you hire way better people, and then you have you can potentially have a hundred x impact, for instance. Oh yeah. Yeah, exactly. Perfect. That's a perfect example. Um, cause yeah, then like the person's working for you for the next, like, you know, year to 10 or whatever. And that's like really, really big. Um, uh, other things are also happiness. So, um, working on like passive happiness techniques. So there are some happiness techniques that basically require constant maintenance. Um, so a lot of them are like, Oh no, like a lot of med- a lot of different sorts of meditations, uh, require that you do them every day mm. forever. And I was like, ugh. Whereas there's some that are much more based and like just emotional techniques generally are based around, oh, hey, um, if you make this change, it can be either like permanent or semi-permanent. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I mean, nothing, very few things are like per- like actually permanent, but like just how much maintenance does it require? Mm. And some stuff is like, oh, you need to meditate for an hour a day for the rest of your life. And other stuff is like, oh, hey, um, you do this thing. Once you reframe a certain topic and then your brain just kind of thinks that about that way and you just have to like occasionally top that or something. Hmm. So you found meditation techniques that have made you reliably happier? Um, okay. So, so like, okay. So when I think of meditation techniques, I actually try and um, I'm, I'm trying to switch over the, the framework to, instead of talking about meditation, I talk about like happiness workouts hmm. because then it can like, you know, expand past just, just like what counts traditionally as meditation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's like the underlying goal of all of this. And, um, uh, so I, I think the one that I found that has had like the most long-term results, but of course it can't be applied to everything is, um, uh, identity changes. So, um, like atomic habits talks about this where he's like, Oh, like the, the foundational thing is like, how do you identify? Right. So, um, uh, he gives an example of, um, say you're trying to quit smoking and um somebody offers you a cigarette and you say no i'm trying to quit um that's a very different uh response than saying no i don't smoke yeah yeah like i'm not a smoker you've changed your identity around that and um i had massive success with that like that's basically just being permanent with like a bunch of different things um so uh the main ones were um one point i just decided that i was a tough person Oh, okay. Like I think, yeah. Like before, I kind of had this idea, like, ah, oh, like every time I, I I got hurt, I would I would actually even describe it. I'm like, ah, oh, I'm like I'm a total delicate flower. Every time I get hurt, like I just like whine and complain the whole time. And and then I was like, I was talking to my friend, and he was saying like, man, like I think that you're really like affected by this, you know, like that, like I think that you and I experience the same like you know stimulus, and you'll suffer way more. Um, it's because you have this thing, and I was like, you know, you're probably right. And so I just kind of like. Which and I was like, okay, well, I, I was able to tap into, so I'm Canadian. My dad's like this crazy mountain man, like just like, like just, <laughs> like he's actually going out into the, like the jungle and the mountains, like looking for gold. And, cool. Um, wow. Yeah. I, I, ever I'm pretty gold? sure he's, <laughs> he has found gold. Yeah. Wow. Um, and I don't think it's ever, yeah. <laughs> but that's actually not the hardest part. The hardest part is find, finding gold in such a way that you could actually build a mine around it. Because mm-hmm. you can find like, oh, there's like a little bit of gold, but it's not enough to justify building a mine. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah. But um, anyways, I've done a bunch of work with him and it was like ridiculously hard. Um, just like hiking up and down mountains with no pet trails with like, you know, pot, like, you know, tons of rocks on your back and, um, you know, bears and 
and bugs and rock slides and all of this stuff, right? And heard of that. And so I just like founding a charity sounds much easier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It is. There's oh my no god. Bears. There's no bears in the charity <laughs> space. There's not one. <laughs> Oh man, the last time I had a nightmare about a bear was a long time ago. It's really <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, and so I was able to like just tap into this identity of like, oh hey, if I did that, like clearly I must be tough, right? I mean to be fair, I was complaining most of the time. But now everything is really small compared to that. Like, so I can be like, okay, like I'm I'm a tough Canadian mountain woman. Um, I can handle everything. And yeah, now pain just bothers me a lot less. It's still there, but like it just lowered the amount of suffering I have when I have physical pain um, by a huge amount. Um, I've also gotten over mosquitoes. Like I just decided one day, I'm like, I'm not the sort of person who's bothered by mosquitoes. And I went from somebody who was like, every time there was a mosquito, I'd be like the person constantly tracking and like just up my anxiety. Mm -hmm. I, I learned to like the rain. Now I like the rain. Uh, yeah. That was really handy. I grew up in like, you know, West coast of Canada and then like spent a lot of time in London, you know, <laughs> yep, yep. in Seattle, in Seattle, there's so much rain. You have to like it or else you're, you're miserable 90% of the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, um, so I feel like identity work, of course, the thing is, is that a lot of times it doesn't work. Right. So like, I think that I tried like that can, that can, uh, especially not work where you try and like have the identity of something and then it's like, you're only so malleable. Right. So, um, uh, but that's definitely been one that's worked a lot and actually, um, yeah, the, the, um, uh, the, the meditation I did for, um, uh, Gendelor imposter syndrome seems to be relatively permanent without having to do much maintenance. It still requires some maintenance, but very little. Can you go into that more? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so, yeah, so I had like major, I was like a confident child. And then I, um, uh, I was working at 80,000 hours in Oxford and that's like basically what gave me my imposter syndrome. Okay. Um, cause that was the first time, like, I mean, it's, yeah, it's based in Oxford, the city in, you know, in, uh, England. And I went from being the sort of person who was usually just kind of like the most confident person in my area, or like at least in the top all the time, like really obviously. And then, so it was like easier to feel confident. And then I went into a place where I was like, oh wow, everybody's ridiculously competent. Like, <laughs> like oh God. <laughs> and uh, this kind of messed with my, um, and then also I just had like set myself like ridiculously high standards for for how to do good in the world. And, um, and so I just like was like just really low confidence, constant anxiety. I, I described my confidence out of 10, at least when it came to work stuff, it was like a three, or something out of 10, um, for most of the last 10 years, mm -hmm. um, very occasionally, if I, if I, if I had enough to drink or something, maybe I could go up to an eight or something, but <laughs> it was only if I was drinking. Okay. Um, That's and, uh, I, and I, tried... I don't think that was the secret to, uh, over happiness. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hoping exactly. just drink all the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you heard it here first. Uh... <laughs> um, so and I tried everything. I tried CBT. I tried, um, you know, just regular mindfulness meditation. I tried, um, you know, um, acceptance and commitment therapy. I tried, um, uh, just a million IFS, uh, internal, like, uh, internal family systems. I tried everything, everything. I tried so many things and nothing worked. Um, it just like really was not, um, it did not stick. And then, um, earlier this year, I took the, uh, finders course and, uh, 
uh, which is right now being called the 45 days to awakening, but I'm just like refusing to call it that because <laughs> what if they want to change it? They, it used to be longer than 45 days. Like they shouldn't have called it that anyways. Um, Jeremy, if you're listening <laughs> or Jeffrey, sorry, <laughs> Jeffrey, if you're listening, change, change the name. <laughs> read my article on how to change, uh, how to, um, how to choose names. But, uh, anyway, um, so I took the finders course and, um, they basically, the, the first week they had you do an hour a day of loving kindness meditation. Mm -hmm. And the, the general practice that I was doing there is what you do is you, um, uh, you think of somebody that's really easy to feel loving kindness towards, mm -hmm. um, loving kindness is like, you could just call it like feeling love or something, but like, I like loving kindness because it kind of gets more of that. Like, it's like more of like the warm vibe. It's not like romantic love, which can be easy to get into. But anyway, so somebody who just feel like lots of warmth and connection towards, um, and really generate that feeling in your head. Just really think about that person. It's really easy. Um, and then once you've kind of got that stabilized a little, think of somebody who's a little bit harder to feel that love and kindness towards, but keep that same level of emotion, right? Mm -hmm. So keep like the level that you had for like the top person and let generate it for this person who's a little bit harder. And if you ever lose that feeling, go back to the easy person, regenerate again and come back. And then once that's stabilized at like a nice level, then go to somebody who's a little bit harder, a little bit harder, you know, and eventually you get to like, you know, strangers and then eventually you get to, you know, like the, the hardest person It's like Hitler or yourself, whichever is, whichever is harder for you. <laughs> and, um, and uh, so like, that's the general principle. I've always loved this practice. I just like it feels great. It's one of those ones where I feel like concentration practice I've tried and it's just really hard to get into a good state with it. Um, I, I've done it and I have a whole bunch of other stuff on that, but like um, uh, loving kindness has always been one of those ones where it's like, Hey, I describe it like 95% of the time when I do a loving kindness meditation, I have a good time. It's just, mm -hmm. it's just I'm, I'm feeling happy and good. Um, but um, I'd only ever done it. I had like a bit of like this puritanical view in my head of like, if something is enjoyable, it can't be that useful or good. Like, mm -hmm. it's like you gotta, you want to do the hard things, the hard things that like, if you're suffering, that means it must be important. Yeah. <laughs> um, very well adjusted belief there. Um, and, uh, and so, um, I'd only ever, and then also in the community, it's just not, um, promoted that much. Like, I feel like loving kindness practice is talked about in meditation classes, but usually it's like, you know, it's, it's like 95% concentration practice, focus on your breath. And then there's like this tiny amount that you're occasionally you're like, okay, maybe we'll end the practice with loving kindness, or maybe we'll do loving kindness, like once a whatever. And in this class, it was like, no, you're going to do an hour of loving kindness practice every day for a week. Mm. And, um, and at first it was great. The first day I just had like a blast. And then, um, and then the second day I was like, okay, well, I'm going to actually, I, I was sending love to everybody else, finding that really easy. And then I thought to myself, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to send it to myself. Um, you know, surely that won't be that hard, right? Like I'm not, I'm not that terrible of a human. Uh, no, it was very hard. I like immediately, the moment I started turning my loving kindness towards myself, it was like this huge wall came down. It was definitely, if you're familiar with like parts work in like internal family systems, it felt like there's, there's a part of me that was like very strong saying like, no, you cannot love yourself. That would be the worst thing ever. Mm -hmm. And then I just like burst into tears. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I was like, well, um, that seems like a totally healthy reaction. <laughs> <I just laughs> 
And I kind of interpreted this as like, this is a giant flashing neon sign saying like, work on this. Like this is yeah. <laughs> that, that needs some work. So I just decided that the rest of the week, I was just going to do loving kindness directed towards myself. And I was just going to really try and work on that. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it was hard. Oh my God. Like my brain just would not, like I kept trying. Like, so I kind of broke it down into, um, saying like, okay, well, can I love myself when I'm doing good things? Can I think of myself doing good things? And then suddenly the kindness just toward that, that aspect of myself. And my brain was like, no, I was like, what if I'm doing bad things? Is that okay? No, definitely not. Okay. <laughs> just, and then I was like, what about if I said love to myself as a child? Is that okay? I was like, no, I got all the way down to um, can I love myself as a baby? Like surely I haven't fucked up things so much that I can't love myself as a baby. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, nope, still couldn't do it. I was just like, nope, I'm a, I'm a chunky baby. Like, you know, <laughs> clearly you can't, you can't, <laughs> which of course is totally wrong. Fat babies are the cutest babies. So yeah, yeah. I don't know. My friends, was, um, and then finally I was able to get my in by imagining my mom holding my baby self. And I was like, okay, like if I'm like, I'm, I know my mom loved me as a baby um, and in general, and that was like my, my in. And I was able to to start with that. That was like my easiest way to feel love to myself. And then I basically started graduating up in that. So I started with that as like the easiest one. And then I would try and think of some aspect of myself. I actually discovered that one of the, the next easiest things wasn't actually loving myself as a baby, but um, uh, sending loving kindness to myself when I was suffering. Um, cause that's like, just like an easier thing for me. Um, uh, being when like, Oh, hey, you're suffering. You was suffering or when you were currently suffering? Yeah. No, like past version of me. So I'd think of like hard times in my life, but I said loving kindness to myself in those periods of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so I was able to like, then slowly build up and eventually get to the point where I was sending loving kindness to myself, um, for, um, you know, <laughs> like the stuff that I tend to have the most trouble with. And I think, so, um, uh, so this, like, this just unlocked a lot of stuff for me. Like, I feel like this was just like one of those things where I was like, oh, wow. And then I also did some, um, more parts work where I talked to the parts were saying like, so I would try and send loving kindness towards myself for, um, uh, like, the, 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 okay, I'm trying to describe this. Okay. So I'd, um, be feeling like, I basically figured out why I didn't want to send self-love to myself. And like, like there's two main reasons. One is like, and I think these are super, super common. One is that, um, uh, you use self-criticism as a way to get yourself to work hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was like, oh, Hey, so like the hardest thing to me to send self-love towards was, um, uh, not finishing everything on my to-do list, which of course my to-do list is never finished. So just like constant, constant self-criticism. And the reason why that was the hardest is because, oh, Hey, that's like, that's where all the lack of self-love is coming from. I'm using like love as like a a carrot or something, or like withdrawing love as like a stick Mm -hmm. to, um, get myself to work hard. Mm -hmm. And so if I do start loving myself, my, my, like one of my like parts of my brain, this like, uh, thought that that would mean that I wouldn't work very hard anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, so that was one thing. Um, and then the other thing as well that I learned, um, this is also kind of doing like more parts work of just like sitting down and asking yourself like, okay, like, cause people tend to think like, oh, low self-esteem, like there's no value to that. Mm-hmm. And it's like, that is not true. There are a lot of benefits for having low self-esteem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, and the other one for me, it was realizing that, um, I had this belief that if I was confident, people wouldn't like me. They would think that I was arrogant. Um, they would just like, it would, it would turn them off. 
and um, just realizing that, and to be fair, I think that is true for some percentage of people, um, but it's very small. And most people just like you more if you're more confident. Mm -hmm. Like it's just, usually it's a pro for most humans. And then there's like the occasional person who's just like, ah. and then also it really just depends on how you express your confidence. So I think that there's, um, there's a, a skill to that. Like if you just go around being like, yeah, I'm better than everybody. It's like, yeah, nobody's going to like you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so what, yeah. uh, what's really interesting to me here is, um, this connects to an idea that I have. So for you, it was all stick and no carrot. Even the, you would say to yourself, like, I don't deserve love because I haven't finished this to do list. And then you would never give yourself love. And this yeah. next to me. Um, so I also did the finance course, by the way, and I found it, I'm not enlightened, unfortunately, but I did find it really useful. And you're reminding me, maybe I should go back and do some more meditations. But <laughs> the finest course has one major issue, which is the park bench problem, as it is called. And essentially, mm -hmm. the park bench problem is once you, um, Jeffrey Martin calls it a, a enlightenment, but it's not culty. It's it's um, or awakening. It's it's more like you. One stage of it is you become very happy all the time. Or, or almost all the time, essentially. I mean, there's more to it, but um, but oftentimes we find that once people become very happy all the time, they have no stick anymore. And then they mm. sit on the park bench and they just do nothing for like, uh, yeah. Tola, I believe, uh, anecdotally did it for like three years, just sat on a park bench every day and just hung out, fed the pigeons, I guess. I don't know, thought about yeah. things. <laughs> and I think, I believe the park bench problem comes from actually having no carrot in your life. And so if you're completely motivated by the hmm. stick, you're completely motivated by low self-esteem, it does drive you forward. The thing about parts work, about internal family systems, is that these parts are doing something useful most of the time. They, they are an adaptive strategy. They're probably just not the best adaptive strategy to use. And so that's why we have compassion for them and love them. But um, yeah, so I, I think oftentimes, uh, that I think my, my theory is that the, the solution to the park bench problem is just to have something that drives you forward and motivates you and learn to, um, like, like you've done, learn to, to be motivated by like charity, for instance. Um, and I don't know, I, I found for instance, that, uh, I was able to give up a lot of those sticks when I became, when I learned to like become obsessed with things. Mm. Yeah, no, I totally believe that. Also an interesting thing is that like, um, I feel like I have a few techniques that I use right now that can pretty reliably just make me feel happy and I can just maintain it pretty much indefinitely. Um, but, but the key thing is, is I can't do anything else while I'm doing them. Hmm. Like I, I just have to be sitting still and like, um, uh, and just doing them. And you'd think like, Oh, Hey, like basically if, if you had the model of, you know, cat's utility function is just like happiness then I should just be sitting around doing these techniques all the time. And I'm just feeling happy. Um, but the thing is, is I can, the interesting thing is I can still feel bored while I'm feeling happy. Mm. Like, I feel like there's like a separate part of me. There's like one part that's like, Hey, joy, excellent. I love this. And then there's nothing like there's, there's other parts of me that like, are just like wanting to like do things. They want to be moving. They want to be like accomplishing things. There's also, also obviously there's a part of me that is like the altruistic part. And it's like, Oh, Hey, like, you know, the world could end. That's pretty important. Like, don't just like go bliss out in the corner somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> like, forget about that. Um, yeah. So I, it did update me. Cause I used to think like, Oh, I just care about mm -hmm. happiness. And that's like my main thing and everything else is indirectly getting there. Um, and now I'm like, no, no, I clearly care about other things. Um, and there are yeah, other, or I'm happiness. just foundation. Pardon me. There are different types of happiness too. I mean, there are happinesses that come from 
uh, fulfillment and their happiness is to come from like, you know, short-term, short-term gain, like eating chocolate or, um, yeah, or, or talking to someone. And then there's the happiness that comes from like having a massive impact in the world and, or like having a family and looking back at your life and looking at your accomplishments. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and there are just, I, I do think that, yeah, like, um, I used to, to really believe, yeah, like everybody was just confused. They thought that they, they, um, uh, cared about these other things, but actually it always came down to happiness. And I've just updated towards like, yeah, there's actually just like a bunch of things that humans can care about. And often the people who think that other people only care about happiness or something, um, are people who tend to, that is one of their main things. And they just care much less about all of the other potential intrinsic goals that people might have. Um, and, and so then they're just doing typical mind fallacy. They're like, well, I only really care about happiness. And the only reason I care about freedom is that it brings me happiness, right? And so if freedom didn't bring me happiness, I wouldn't care about it. And so this other person who says they value freedom intrinsically, they're just wrong. Because like, I used to think that too, but I'm wrong. And it's like, no, 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 I actually think like, I mean, some percentage of people who say they care about freedom intrinsically are wrong. And they actually do just care about it extrinsically. They just care like freedom causes happiness and they care about happiness. Um, but also a big percentage of them are like, no, they actually do just value freedom or like replace that with beauty or um, equality or something. There's like a whole bunch of other things like, you know, it's like, okay, do you care about equality or do you care about people being happy? Um, and I think like a lot of people are just, they only care about equality because it tends to bring happiness. But um, other people just like, no, that's like an intrinsic thing they care about. I think we could um, do a really simple thought experiment and just say like, how many people, if I asked them, if I gave them the choice, uh, you can cure cancer, but you will be depressed for the rest of your life and it will not be able to be cured. How many people would, would take that? And I think a lot of them, I think a lot of people would. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, okay. And people say like, oh, but you get the satisfaction of knowing that. It's like, no, no, no. The thought experiment no, says that you you're just going to be like sad. You're, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you don't <laughs> no even know you cured you. cancer. You have no idea. Like, yeah. I'm uh, sure a lot of people would do it. <laughs> you're right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good one. I like that. I'm going to use that as an example from now on. Mm. Um, uh, but bring, bring it back to the, the confidence thing. Okay, so like basically the um, the loving kindness was the first step. And then also figuring out why, like my underlying reasons for why I was supporting this like lack of confidence. Um, and then the, the second thing I did, so I got rid of like a lot of it. I felt like a lot better after that. But I think the, the big thing that changed for me was after the course was over, um, so this whole idea of like generate and like pick something that generates the emotion for you, then like, you know, kind of level up, um, that like being able to feel an emotion for other things. I realized, um, my insight was that you can just generalize that to any emotion you want. Mm. Um, so you, you can practice any emotion. So I call it emotion practice where it's like, so, um, one of the ones that I do, um, is, uh, for example, you can do excitement practice where you think of something that's really exciting. Then you think of something that's slightly less exciting and like, you know, but still feel excited and just, you know, slowly build up your excitement. I can't do this meditation for long. Cause usually I get too excited and then I have to <laughs> get up and do stuff, but, <laughs> um, and so I realized I could do this for confidence. So I started to do confidence practice or what I would do is I would think of something that made me feel confident. And usually it's actually just, um, so I'll, I'll give the general structure and then I'll give an example. So start with something that like, you know, it's easy to feel confident about and then like move like to harder and harder things until you're like feeling confident about like the thing that you really hate about yourself or like whatever. Um, 
And so, so for me, like two examples that I would often think of for like the easy one is, um, I would imagine, um, being basically like Dumbledore giving advice to Harry Potter, but like I'm, I'm Dumbledore, but like I switched the genders to make it so that it was like more identifiable for me. So it was just like, I'm this like old wise woman who's taking care of like, who's like guiding this like young 11 year old girl who's like the chosen one and she's great, but she's still 11 and an idiot, right? <laughs> like, but I have like total confidence that she'll get there and that she's like totally gonna be the one, right? Yeah. And, um, and I would just imagine being like the, the old lady and then eventually switching into like having that emotion be like, I am feeling it towards myself. Um, and then start with the easier things, right? Of feeling like, okay, I'm going to have this um, feeling of confidence for, um, I don't know, um, what are like, um, like being like, yeah, like just like easier things and eventually get to the hard things that like, I'm just like, oh man, like, I really hate that about myself. And um, and what it, what it was doing is, or like another one I would do is um, uh, like also often just putting on, like I have like this whole like confidence playlist of like these songs that just really make me feel like, yeah, like just like strong, like just really anything that helps you get into that state of feeling confident. And then applying that to things. And, um, I have like a whole spreadsheet where I'd have like a list of things that are easy to make myself feel confident. And then I have a list of things that are, um, I'm wanting to work on and feel more confident about. Mm. And one of the, the, one of the biggest ones is honestly just my to-do list. I would just go through my to-do list for the day and like, look at each of the ones. And instead of feeling like, um, I very often be in the state of like anxiety and like beating myself up. I'm like, Oh, I should have done that like three days ago. Why haven't I done that? And instead looking at it, um, and then feeling confident about it and feeling like, okay, I've got this, like, I'm doing good. Like, this is all good. And, um, I did that for an hour a day for about two weeks or so. And I went from like three out of 10 confidence to like, during that period of time, I was like a nine out of 10 confidence. I was just so like, so confident. Wow. Um, and, uh, and then I stopped doing it every day. I switched to doing it like pretty much not at all for a few months. And like, I, I went down to like about a seven out of 10 confidence. Mm. And then I've just kind of been there since then. And occasionally I'll do the meditation, uh, the, the confidence meditation. Um, but like max, like 20 minutes and like once every like month or so, like not super frequently. So you put it in and I just stayed there around four hours of work. And then you ended up with something like double the confidence that you've, that you had at baseline before. Yeah. So um, I mean, actually how many hours was it? Cause it was like an hour a day of loving kindness and then an hour a day for two weeks. So like, that's like, like it's around like 21 hours or something of, mm. of effort. But uh, yeah, I mean, that was about seven months ago now and mm. it's still here. So, I mean, very still out, like, you know, it's really hard to create permanent changes in your brain, but um, it does feel like, like there's been like a, a bunch of times where like, oh, like I just had like a really shitty week and I had like no energy or willpower and I just did like practically nothing. And usually those weeks I'd be like so hard on myself. And now I feel like, I still have like the part that's like, Hey, get back to work. But also it just seems like strange in my mind to think that I would then update and think that therefore I'm like this like lazy, terrible person and can't do anything. And that used to be my default was like, mm -hmm. Oh, I'm like a lazy, terrible person who doesn't do anything. And, and now it's just like, kind of like, it's almost like outside of my like ability to think that or something, which is like a really cool feeling. Yeah. And I just feel a lot better. I do wonder if I should do it more because like, maybe I could stabilize it at nine. And that was like way more enjoyable. It was like way better. And, uh, you know, it was also, I, I do think it was more fun to be around me. Although maybe it's like when, when you're drunk, you're like, oh yeah, everybody loves me. Like, <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> overdose on confidence. That's that's a yeah. Is ten too probably? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's fascinating. But, uh, yeah, yeah, and I and I think what's happening um, with this is like um, I think it's a bit like a. Um, so in uh, unlocking the emotional brain, this is like the um, like memory consolidation stuff um, that like Slate Star Codex wrote an article about. That was really good. I forget it's like it has mountains in the title. I forget what's called. Um, and uh, in this book, he talks about kind of like the underlying principle for a lot of why different sorts of therapies work. And like, I mean, it's probably wrong. Everything we know about psychology is wrong, but yeah. like it seems like less wrong than other stuff. And um, he talks about basically you have these like emotional learnings. You have like these like, you know, neural networks that have like learned a certain pattern. They're like, oh, hey, if you're confident, people won't like you. Right. Or, or just like, hey, if you look at your to-do list, you should feel anxious. Right. Like that's like another pattern it's learned. And, um, and what you want to do is you want to, um, uh, activate those patterns. So it's active. And then, so that you can then rewrite the pattern. Mm -hmm. Right. So like experience the thing and then like put in the replacement. Um, and this is like an underlying thing that happens with a lot of different sorts of therapies, even if they're like not consciously doing it. And, um, what I feel like it's happening here is like, Hey, you go through a thing that you're like, Oh, Hey, I usually have a negative emotional reaction to this. When you look at it, you feel that negative emotional reaction, but then you pull in this like new rewrite of just like, Oh, Hey, I'm feeling good. And it's not even like this, like conscious thing. It's like experiential. Like you're just like experiencing, Oh, I feel confident about this. And then you keep practicing it. Right. And so like, I think that was the key thing, right. Is that, um, uh, I think a lot of times people will have this insight during like some sort of retreat or seminar or something and they'll go and they'll be like, Oh my God, I realized that this is because my mother did this when I was young and now I believe this or whatever. And if you just have it once, sometimes it can get locked in if there's not like enough other resistance or if like the emotion is strong enough when you have it, because like emotions tend to get things locked in more, um, which is why we tend to have so much lock in with negative emotions because mm -hmm. we tend to have them more intensely. Um, and so like, but yeah, usually it just, it comes in, but you have to, you have to practice it to get it to actually be the default. And, um, that's why I think was working with the confidence practice is it's like, Oh, Hey, like, um, you're like doing it every day. Like I had a spreadsheet where like, these are the things I'm working on. I would come back to them each day and I would practice feeling a certain way towards them and it would become easier and easier. And then I'd start doing them less and less based on like, um, how easy it was for me. Um, and, uh, and then also broad. So like, I think that a lot of times people think that like confidence is like, oh, you either are a confident person or you're not a confident person. It's like, no, no, no. You can be confident about your social skills, but really underconfident about your math skills. And then really confident about like all these different things. And so like the other thing that happens with confidence practice is that you're actually going through all of the things that you're underconfident about and then reprogramming each of them instead of just kind of like, yeah, just trying to like focus on one thing and then forget about the rest. The visual that I'm seeing is, so I, I think a, a lot about neural networks, like, uh, it, but actual physical, biological neural networks. And so you're creating this confidence neural network, and then you're slowly spreading it to other phenomena in your brain. So like you're, you're making the confidence neural network larger and larger until it grabs the math part of your brain or the, you know, the, the, how I think about myself when it comes to math part of my brain. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's a good way of thinking about it. Mm. I, uh, I had a, I had a really interesting discovery, self-discovery about narcissism the other day. So I, um, I have this ongoing and feel free to contribute to this if you'd like, but I, I have this ongoing question of how do I deal with negative comments online or, or negative reactions online? And I've asked quite a few people who are influencers about this and I've, I've gotten some good answers, but I haven't gotten an answer that really grips me. Like, how do I deal with 
on the internet, we have, you know, you could potentially have hundreds of people uh, saying negative things. Even if there are tens of thousands saying positive things, the hundreds still stick out. And I was kind of doing this exercise where I was asking myself if I could take up different mental states to deal with these negative comments. And one of the ex one of the mental states that came up was narcissism, which is really interesting. I, I'm not usually prone to narcissism, but I suddenly <laughs> realized that narcissism is an adaptive mechanism to negativity. Like I, I, I suddenly could totally understand why people who grow up with like negative parents or like verbally abusive parents would just take on the skin of narcissism because it just makes so much sense to be like, fuck you, fuck you all. I don't care about anything anyone says because I'm the best. And that's, and it diverges so much from confidence in this, in this really interesting way, because confidence is something like a natural confidence to me sounds natural and healthy. Um, where uh. narcissism sounds like a, a shield for the, the world, a barrier between me and the outside world. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Let me know when you figure that one out. Cause that's still like one of the, <laughs> um, yeah, I'm curious to hear like, what, what do you feel like is like the difference between narcissism and confidence? Um, yeah. Like when, when you say those words, what do you, what, what do you feel the difference is? Um, I think when you, yeah, I, I think narcissism, uh, maybe the difference comes from criticism. And so when we receive criticism, a competent person can perhaps um, say, like, thank you for your critique and then think about it and not not necessarily go into a shame spiral or like a low self-esteem, dive into low self-esteem when they receive criticism. Maybe there's this there's this thing that I've been thinking of, of like a like a circular pattern that humans have. And the faster you can complete the circle, the better you get at learning a skill. And so the circle goes something hmm. like uh, try a thing and then um, figure out you're bad at it, either by criticism or like just figuring out yourself and then work on it and then get better at the thing. And a lot of people have trouble trying things. They have trouble getting criticism and they have trouble implementing a new strategy to work better. And so if you can master all three of these skills, then you, you can just iterate like crazy. Um, so like my biggest issue is, is probably implementation, like long-term implementation. Um, but narcissism feels to me like when you receive criticism, you say, fuck you. I don't like, I'm the best. Y your opinions. Uh, yeah, no, that sounds about right. That she is like a really good point. Um, yeah. And I think like, actually like, um, an interesting thing for me that happened with the confidence was realizing that like, okay, like I'm worried that people will think I'm arrogant. Um, and so I spent a lot of time thinking about like, well, what's the difference between confidence and arrogance? And, um, I think, I mean, there's two underlying things I think are the main things that, that people are gesturing at. Like one is like whether it's justified or not, right? So if somebody's um, confident um, and they're they're as good as they think they are, then people are less likely to call them arrogant than if somebody's like actually quite bad, but they still think they're the best, right? You're like, okay, but you're not, right? That's one aspect of arrogance. But the other is just like, yeah, being good at being confident or not, like socially skilled at it. Um, so like, uh, um, I have a friend of mine and he's like, He's actually ridiculously confident, but he doesn't come across that way. He comes across as like regular confidence, 
He's like, oh, like I'm a fine person. I do all stuff. And you get to know him and you talk to him. You'll find out that actually, like, and, and this is only if you push and like you like ask all these crazy questions. He'll be like, oh yeah, like I think I'm like way better than everybody else. And like I'm way nicer and I'm way all these things, right? And to be fair, he is. Like I, I totally agree with him on this assessment. I'm like, he is ridiculously competent. If everybody was him, the world would be a much better place. Um, but uh but he never says that he, and you never get this vibe that he's going around thinking that he's like better than you or anything. Right. He's just like, well, I mean, there's like different levels of skill and like, that doesn't mean anybody's like less morally valuable or like less interesting. Like people have like all the good traits and stuff. And so, um, I didn't think that's like a, a whole other thing. And this actually actually even comes up with, um, uh, assertiveness. I found that like, um, a lot of people, if they're, if they're like really hard to, if they find it really hard to say no, um, and they're working on trying to get good at it, often what they'll do is they'll, they'll, they'll try. They're like, okay, I'm going to be assertive. I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to say like, no. And they just say no, like because they're not very practiced at it, they do it in a really unskillful way and in, in such a way that it just makes it way more likely that people like get mad at them and push back. And then they go and they say, oh, see, you know, people are just, um, I, I mean, I see this sometimes with sexism, right? Where like a lot of times yeah. women tend to be like less assertive. They go and they try and be assertive, but they don't have very much practice and then they get pushed back. And then they're like, oh, see, like people are just sexist. And I'm like, no, well, I mean, I mean, that could be it. But like another possibility is that like you said no in like such an unskillful way. You were just like, no, like, and you were angry about it as opposed to being like, I, let's not do that. Right. Or like, I like, I'm not gonna, like, there's, there's, there's better ways to do it. And like, yeah, you need to like be skillful at it. And I think that some of my confidence stuff was that I was responding. Like I had been confident in a way that turned people off because I was young and I didn't know how to do it. And then I thought, Oh, therefore being confident makes people mad at you. Mm. It's like, no, no, no. You just have to be good at it. <laughs> just practice. And that's a really good example of in internal family systems, a part that did something good for you. Right? So at the time when you were seven years old or whatever it is, and you tried to be confident, it said, don't be confident. Let's just stick to what we know and then people will like us. And then people liked you. But that part was is, is very old and it's, you know, it, it was made when you were a young child and now you have these social skills to go back and kind of rewrite that story. And one really important part of that is that that part of you is a neural network once again. So it's like a system that says, don't be confident. And that that is taking up energy in your brain. Like, I don't know this for sure, but I, it kind of seems logical to me that it takes up energy in your brain. So if you if you free that part of you up and then reroute it towards something else, like instead of saying, uh, "Don't be confident," instead, if you if you got it to to ask a question like, "How could I get this person to like me more?" or in a healthy way, mm. then it yeah. frees up all of that energy, which is a limited resource in your brain, and then makes you more, I would say, more aligned. And so alignment is like to me, alignment is when all the different parts of you, like there's a part of you that wants to get a donut and there's a part of you that wants to go to the gym. If, if you figure out how to align those parts um, and so they're working together instead of fighting with each other, that's, um, it's kind of one step closer to becoming the best version of yourself that you can be. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, the interesting thing with the part stuff that um, uh, I, I feel like, um, like I, I actually really like thinking of them as like the neural networks, how you're describing. Um, because then, uh, um, like, I think with like a lot of times, like with internal family systems, like they're explicitly modeling off of family therapy. And like, it's really important that everybody feels respected and, and, uh, you're definitely not allowed to like murder anybody in family therapy. Yeah. That would be considered, you know, 
like, you're not allowed to do that. You're yeah. like, like, okay, Rob, I'm having problems with my wife. Can I just kill her? And you're like, no. Like, Very fun. Yeah. fun. But yeah, but, but in like with neural networks, I actually think that there is such a thing as like, you know, like killing them. Like, I think you actually can like, um, just like remove, like I had like a part of me that was like, Hey, I really hate mosquitoes. Like I really hate getting bit by them. I really like, you know, it was like all, everything about it. Like, you know, and I just kind of killed it. Like, I mean, like I killed it by like neglect. I just like, didn't feed it. Mm. Like I didn't, I didn't like give it attention. I didn't like keep thinking it or whatever. Right. And it just slowly faded away. Mm. Right. And I feel like that's like a thing that I worry about sometimes with internal family systems is it takes all of the parts very seriously. And it's like, Oh, they all have to go if they want. And or it's like negotiations or like, let's all get together. And I'm all like, no, sometimes like, you know, you can just like either get rid of them or make them smaller or, you know, just all sorts of stuff. And like some, some you can't, right. Like there's definitely like, Oh, in fact, probably most you can't, right. Like you can't just like, you know, convince yourself. Like I had like a whole thing where, um, I spent like a whole bunch of, um, uh, a previous relationship trying to, um, make myself like something that I did not like. Right. And it took me like a long time to eventually realize I'm like, no, I can't just like change what I like, you know, at some point you just have to be like, okay, Hey, this makes me unhappy. And that's that. Right. Um, and, uh, yeah. So like there's all, there's all like, yeah, like range of things, but yeah, like also like I, I learned to, to not my mosquitoes and that's like, I would have thought before that that's impossible. Like mosquitoes are like the worst thing ever. And, uh, well, clearly not the worst thing ever, but, uh, you know, ugh, not, not fun. Um, and, uh, yeah. So I do think that that's like an important aspect to add to it is that like, you can, you can like actually quite change your neural networks or like almost get rid of them entirely. Mm, really interesting. I, um, I haven't taken that approach of killing. I've, uh, I've definitely taken the approach of, of, I think I generally go for recycling myself. So like, for instance, I had this thing, I had this kind of network where every time I would think about playing music or that I hadn't played music today, I would get uh, anxious and then I would procrastinate on it. And so I needed to work on that. And I just mm. said to myself, like, instead of getting anxious, can you just like have the song that you want to be working on just playing in your head over and over again in a loop? And now, and it somehow like worked like magic. And so now whenever I ah. need to work on music, like the song that I'm working on just, just plays in my head. And, um, and so, yeah, I, I, I generally think of it more like recycling rather than killing, but, um, I do wonder if we have this urge to, um, I think a lot of us have this urge to kill a certain part of ourselves sometimes that we can't kill. And I do wonder whether suicidality comes from that. Like when I have, um, I was, I, so when I was like younger, when I was a teenager, I was, I was quite suicidal and now like, I just, I have these flashes of like, not suicidality exactly. And it's it's not really much anymore, but it was it would be this thing like, I should kill myself. And it would just be a, a, a phrase rather than an actual emotion huh. or like a plan or something like that. It would, and, and I realized it was connected to shame. And so every time I, I thought of something I was ashamed of in the past, this like old part of a network would spring up and, and it wouldn't be anything serious and it isn't. Um, and also call the suicide helpline if you need help. Um, I don't know the number. You can figure it out. You can use Google. And uh, but, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I do wonder if off because I suicide is so interesting to me because it's it's it goes against evolution. Like things that go against evolution are really interesting to me. Like it is against every single evolutionary principle to kill yourself unless you're like protecting your children, for instance. 
Um, yeah. So I do wonder if it's just like, if you're suicidal, maybe you just want to kill a part of yourself that you're having. To- uh, and I'm not a psychologist and don't take this as advice, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I, I suspect that like, that's one of those things where I wouldn't be surprised if it's some percentage of wanting like, you know, to, to die. Right. And then there's going to be like, it's kind of like, um, uh, what are the causes of depression? Like, or what, what is the cause of depression? There is no the cause of depression. There's going to be like, you know, probably thousands of different things that can cause depression. And I, I suspect the same is true for, for wanting to commit suicide. It's just like, there's going to be thousands of potential reasons and like some percentage of them might be that and like yeah people are trying to get rid of things um and like all sorts of other things like yeah sometimes it is a cry for help it's funny like how people like one thing that i really want to change around that is that um people say like oh um it's just a cry for help mm-hmm. and i'm like why just yeah like what yeah. do you mean a just a cry- <laughs> Yeah, a cry for help is kind of important. Like, what the hell? Imagine like somebody was screaming, "I'm being murdered!" And they're like, "Ah, they're just crying <laughs> for help." Crying. <laughs> oh my god, that's a great analogy. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah. EA, which is effective altruism, by the way, uh, for anyone listening, EA is is really seeming to hone in on mental health, which is really interesting because um, in the past kind of decade, it seems like. They've been super focused on the external, on like how to how to maximize every single dollar for charity. But now, um, I just talked to my friend Gunnar, who's in EA and uh, on the AI side, and he said like the last meeting in Hamburg was was really focused on mental health and taking care of ourselves first. And it's a it's a change I really like to see. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's actually um like, and I think it's like for really good reason. Like, I think that a lot of the reason why we often don't help other people is because we're like dealing with our own issues. Right. So, um, and, and I do think that like, there's like the thing is like, first, like before you help the world, help yourself, then you help your community, then help the world. I think you can just skip to helping the world. I don't think you have to, to, to help your local community in particular. Um, but, uh, like I get the general sentiment and I do think that like, you know, if you're drowning, like I have a friend who, um, she's got like some really like intense, a million really intense issues. Like, it's just like, man, she just got hit with the unlucky stick of all the things. And, um, like she often says like, Oh, like I feel kind of guilty that I'm not doing more for the world. And I'm like, don't like you just focus on yourself and get, get to the point where you could help others. Mm-hmm. Right. Like if somebody's drowning, you're not like upset at them for like helping other, not helping other people who are also drowning. You're like, no, <laughs> first you need to be on a ship where you can pick people up and take them somewhere. If a, if a drowning person tries to help another drowning person, you're just going to drown faster. Yeah. So, like, um, and, uh, and like, it's an interesting question of like whether EA has more mental health issues than other groups. I don't think so. My prediction is that we ha- we're just about as neurotic as most other groups like there's always like some like certain percentage of people are going to be suffering with mental health issues um at some point but i I do think there's like um uh yeah like there's definitely like a lot of things that can be maybe specific to ea that i mean autism it's all like hmm? autism for sure i think (laughs) in a good way it's the good kind of autism yeah (laughs) that one for sure yeah, yeah, that is just definitely disproportionately in EA. Um, and uh, yeah, and just like, you know, actually taking care of yourself, working on that. I think that um, my original, like I had a couple, uh, I had one period in my life where like, I just really, um, I was dealing with a lot, a lot of mental health issues and like, it just really affected my ability to work. 
And, and then there was another time where it almost basically made me leave EA entirely. Um, and, uh, and then just actually working on it. And now I actually have a system where, um, whenever I notice it coming on, like I'll have this thing, like, and those like these like particular symptoms. I'm like, Oh, and like, I just like, before I would just be like, just work through it, push through it. Now I'm just like, no, 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 stop everything. Make this number one priority. Because if you get it early and you like do all the things that you can really, um, you know, prevent yourself from spiraling and instead just be like, yeah, in a much better state. Um, would you like to hear uh, what the particular symptoms are? Um, yeah. So, I mean, for me, like there's this particular feeling that is like sadness that's worse than regular sadness. I'm trying to think about like what it actually feels like that's different. Um, uh, it just feels, God, this is going to be hard to explain. I mean, it's just sadness, but more extreme, but, um, I'm trying to think of like, it's like a, a sinking sensation in the heart, like chest area. It's like this, like extreme lack of like, or it's like hopelessness. It's not even like lack of motivation. It's like, Oh, nothing works. Um, and, um, yeah, it's like, it's interesting to try and introspective to think about those, like, um, and then, Oh, and one thing that happens for me is like, um, like depression, and anxiety tend to go together. Yay. Um, <laughs> and, um, for me, I'll like, I know that it's getting bad if like, there's a certain, like, usually my anxiety is around a certain thing. Like, so I'll be thinking about something and I'll be like worried about it, but then there could be this anxiety that is, um, generalized and it'll, I'll just feel jumpy. Like, I'll just feel like, and then the thing that it's like, oh man, this is definitely like, this is, this is serious is when I start being sensitive to sounds where like, usually I'm a very loud person. It's like, good that you're talking to me now over this. You can control the volume. It's excellent. But, uh, um, yeah, I'm like usually really loud. I love being around noise. In fact, it makes me feel happier and more energized. But when I'm getting to a certain level of anxiety, um, noises will just make me jump like for, for nothing. Like they don't have to be anything in particular. It could even be like, I'll even not even be able to listen to like super soothing spa music because it's just like sound freaks me out. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's definitely a symptom of like, Oh, Hey, yeah. Like this is, that's not, that's not normal levels like of anxiety that let's gain too, too far. And then usually what I just need to do is, um, usually just usually ends up happening when I've just been working too hard and I just need to slow down. And usually I'll just like take like, you know, four to five days off and just really like low key and then like realize that um i can't work as hard as i was working and just work like a reasonable amount when i am in the so i, I seem to go through ups and downs but when i'm in the mood to work i find it very guilt inducing to not work do you have the same issue oh my god that's like a whole thing i still need to work on that like, like i figured out the confidence thing i'm pretty i'm pretty good about that but like god guilt is like yeah well i'm great at guilt i'm amazing at it i have it all the time Congratulations. <laughs> yeah uh, um yeah no i definitely have um but like the thing is, is like and i think this is like one of the re like i think the, the reason why guilt is hard to get rid of is because um like the use for it is very clear. It does get you to work, right? Like, um, and yeah, I just want to, like, I just know though that like I was super productive as a teenager and super, super happy. Um, and I know what it feels like to be productive just from like an approach motivation. Like I had no guilt as a teenager. Um, I mean, maybe I should have had some more guilt. I don't know, but like I had no guilt. I just worked hard and 
like was confident and happy and um and so I know what it feels like and like so I know I can do that um but uh yeah I haven't I have never gotten it back I think though one of the reasons is that before when I was younger all of my goals were relatively achievable like they were all like they're all really and, and they were all completable so like um I just wanted to, I was really like super into getting good grades. Um, and so I just like studied a bunch and was able to get like top marks in the class. And, and then the, like, there's only so much you could study. I was like, okay, I studied enough. Like this is, this is going to be good. And then, and then I was done. And then like, I was like, I finished my homework. I studied enough. And so I'm done. Like I've completed my goals. Whereas now my goals are like, there's no such thing as them being complete. They're just continuous forever. <laughs> Solve the problem of suffering. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and you never find out. That's the other thing too, is that like with school, I like the thing I loved about school is that like you got like, somebody would tell you how well you did. And you got like the feedback and they would tell you why you got what did it well or poorly or something. And um, and then like, EA is the worst. I, I've um, I've said that. I think that EA is like a more intellectually challenging puzzle than rocket science. So at least with rocket science, you find out if the rocket worked. Like you can be like, look, rocket went into space or rocket didn't go into space. Mm -hmm. With EA, even if you do everything right, and even if you measure all of your results and you're like, oh, hey, we like, we saved like X number of people from vaccine preventable diseases in India. Maybe, maybe there that could still be bad, right? So some reasons it could be bad. Maybe um, they go on and eat tons of factory farmed animals and that actually changes the sign and makes it so it's like massively net negative, mm -hmm. right? Or maybe their lives are really bad, right? Like maybe you save lives and actually like they just go on to live like lives full of suffering because they're still like living in super poverty and it kind of sucks, right? Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. I mean, I don't put high probability in this, but maybe we're just being neo-colonialists or whatever. And like, maybe we're just being unethical for like trying to, help people get vaccinated. Mm -hmm. Maybe vaccines are bad for you. Who knows? I mean, I don't think so, but like, there's like, but, but even, even taking away the, the, um, those are all like, uh, um, uh, or the, the last two were more like epistemic things of like being like, Oh, Hey, did this thing work? Like, uh, like about statements of fact, but, like you could just be wrong about what's ethical. Like maybe actually it's better to prioritize your local community. Like maybe it is actually like this, like, you know, or, um, it's better to be a deontologist or like there's like or like a virtue ethics like maybe i should be like focusing more on being like you know warm or something and like i'm actually me focusing on just like calculating the numbers makes me like less ethical or something like we don't we don't know what's ethical and it, it, i'm not even sure if it's possible to know <laughs> so you like you don't even know if you're trying to get the rocket to go into space or you know or to the moon or to like just a next door. Like you don't even know the direction you want to go. In. <laughs> there's that old, so it's really hard. Yeah. There's that um, kind of very well-known story about Tom shoes, where if you buy a pair of Tom shoes, they send another pair to Africa. And the issue with that is that um, the African labor force making shoes now is out of the job because uh, <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're, they're getting free shoes. And actually, maybe shoes even aren't that good for you. And maybe they kind of fuck yeah. up your foster and maybe we should be barefoot anyway. Um, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it's very tough. Um, and what you said about yeah. small communities is really interesting. I had um, a really clever guy on EA. Um, I don't know if he wants to be named, so I won't name him. But he, he linked me this article 
called uh, it's it's actually a long series of essays called Shimon and Heidi, and it's a it's by a Jewish guy talking about the difference between uh, this really orthodox Jewish guy and and this non-orthodox girl who's kind of against Judaism and and kind of against the parochial like uh, we own, we're in, we live in our community sort of vibe. And and the thing about Judaism that makes it so successful, one of the things is that um, they are completely self-sustained. Like at hmm. all, like you're you only buy Jewish, you only buy kosher food. And so there's a, an authority that keeps things kosher. There's a guy who kills the animals. Um, there's like people who oversee the factories, all these different things. And so like you're employing other Jews. And then it, in this in this article, like Shimon, if he needs if his landlord hikes the rent up, then he gets his friends and they go and talk to the landlord and they maybe haggle with him or something. And so whereas Heidi, on the other hand, she she gets a rent increase and then she goes and petitions the government for like um rent freezes or something, you know, for for to make it make mm. sure there's lower rent. And and obviously the government or like any large scale organization has massive overhead. And so for every dollar you send to the federal government, your local community is going to get maybe like a 25 cent return or something crazy, right? So there's yeah. <laughs> a lot of bloat. Whereas like having a self-sustained community, like the Jewish community, I don't I've never read any research on this, but I assume they have far less need for like government services because they are sustaining themselves constantly. And so one question that I have in my mind that I've had recently is like, how can we help other communities become self-sustaining? And so they're they're helping each other instead of us needing to go, like charities are amazing, obviously, but the best thing would be to not need charities. And that's that's actually a Jewish, prop, like not a proverb, but it's a Jewish rule of like, the best charity is actually to like, help a guy out. And so he doesn't need charity, like offer him a job or something. Yeah, yeah. Well, I actually, the way I kind of view um, uh, charities is like, okay, so like, basically, um, you've got, like, like, originally, it's the community that gives things or like businesses, right? And then the government fills the gaps that the, the businesses in the community don't fill. Mm -hmm. And then charities fill the gaps that none of those other people were filling, right? So I feel like that's kind of like the way I look at it. So it's going to be like basically the only way we're going to get rid of um, charities is if we like, you know, get rid of like all of the gaps, right? Which would be great. I would love that. But I, but I also think the reason why um, charities will probably continue to exist is that there's just going to be a lot of people who will just never... Um, like they're never going to get served by the the local community or like, well, it's not something they get it by the local community, but like businesses will never serve them. Right. So like chickens, right. Like I care about chickens intrinsically. Like I think that chickens matter as like their own separate entities and like, they're never going to be able to like buy, like, con like contribute to like the market economy and like, or they're never going to be able to vote or like yeah. fight for their rights at like city hall or anything like that. They're just kind of like, okay, like they're just at our mercy. Yeah. And, um, and, and yeah, it's not great to be at the mercy of humans where you have no, uh, <laughs> it's like, I'd rather not. Thank you. Um, although interestingly, so for all of this, um, like I used to spend a lot more time thinking about like a lot more random things. And then like, I'm very much operating under the, um, like, you know, uh, paradigm of like, at some point in the next one to, to 150 years, we're going to create like a super intelligent AI. Yep. And I just kind of have as my thing. I'm like, let's just make sure that goes well. And then it will figure out everything else. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so it's just kind of like, I used to be like really concerned, like which animals are conscious, like, or which entities are conscious. Mm -hmm. And now I'm just like, no, we just need to get the super intelligence to care about consciousness. Yeah. And then it will figure out what are conscious, what's conscious or not. Cause like, I still have like very, like, 
um, I, I describe myself as an epistemic absurdist. Like, I'm just like, I have no idea what's going on. I feel like, you know, it's like the world is incredibly hard to understand. Uh, we're just monkeys. We're just monkeys in shoes. Mm-hmm. Like, we, like, we, we t- like, take ourselves so seriously. And like, we're very smart monkeys compared to other monkeys, but we're still monkeys. And, um, and whenever we think we understand the world, we're just actually wrong. And it's just like much more comforting to believe that we do understand what's going on. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and like, for a while, it's really fucked me up because I was like, well, but like, you know, there's all this suffering in the world and we need to do something like we have to just like sit around. Um, but it's really hard to help. There's all sorts of weird flow through effects and like, you know, how do you actually help? And, um, and then for a while, like the thing that actually almost made me give up was this, like, I, I was like an epistemic nihilist. Like I was like, I was like, oh, I can't know anything. And this causes me helplessness and, um, depression. And, um, and then I realized, well, I just actually couldn't give up. That was the problem. This was like, ah, like, even if I think I literally can't do anything, I like still have to try. Yep. Um, because you know, you have to right? And, um, there's just like, ah, the world's terrible. Um, I mean, there's good parts, there's tons of good parts, but there's also like a lot, a lot, a lot of bad parts. And, um, uh, and then I was like, okay, I need to get smarter. So I spent a whole bunch of time trying to like get smarter and like more under- understand things. Like this is, um, I'm still working on global poverty. So I like went to Africa and like lived in this like sorghum farm and was re- trying to like get really down into like nitty real life of like what was going on. So I could like understand better while also at the same time I was reading like meta ethics. So I was like, I was basically getting like super in the weeds and then super also, I mean, in the weeds, I suppose, but like in a different way, like very direct real life experience. And then also like as abstract as possible. Um, and, uh, that gets on the ground. Um, yeah, that's, uh, I've, I th- I've heard, I have I've read this book uh, about face by Hackworth. It was about the Vietnam War. And essentially his main criticism of why we lost the Vietnam War was that there were all these generals that were way at the top and they had no idea about what was going on, on the ground. And he was mm. kind of, he, he kept getting promoted, but he would like stay with his soldiers on the ground and constantly talk to them and figure out all the nitty gritty, obviously war, whatever, whatever ethical dilemmas you have about war, I get it. But like, um, one thing that really stood out to me was in the Korean War was uh, he was they could smell the other the Chinese soldiers because they smelled like garlic. And so and they never wore um, cologne because they realized that it would drift and then they would be able to smell them. And so he tells this one day, he says, well, we're going through this Chinese encampment and we smell garlic. And then the generals above laugh at him and they say, oh, like you can smell the enemy out. Um, and then he realizes oh, for the and- first time that they have no fucking idea what they're talking about. and worst part of it is that these people are like funding the war they're they're commanding everyone and they have and so like being on the ground like you are is is perhaps the most important part of of leading a good initiative yeah well it's interesting um like it's it's an interesting thing like i think that you need that to a certain extent i'm not sure how much though like Mm. i was doing that i mean now now it's like kind of like weird because like i'm working ai safety what does even on the ground mean there um (laughs) i suppose i could be in the offices of the ai safety researchers and like like sitting over their shoulders or something um which would be actually really cool i'd love to do that but uh, i'm sure i would not understand anything that's going on so i don't know um but uh um like, I feel like, um, so you need some on the ground experience, but I think that people overestimate that, um, at least in the near term space compared to, um, like actually like reading the studies and trying to understand that. Cause like, um, I don't know, I think of like, um, people often say like, oh, well, like, uh, like when I was working in global poverty, um, they're like, oh, you should start local, right? Like start, start with your local town. I'm like, 
what do I know about homelessness in Victoria? Mm. Like, I don't know anything. Like, it's not like just because I'm living there, it doesn't mean that I actually understand anything. Mm. And then even if I was in the trenches, like seeing like, like what it was like to be homeless or something, um, it's, it's like, um, Kind of like to, to get around, you need to have like, um, like if you're trying to navigate a new space, like you need to be able to see out your window and see where you're going. We also need Google Maps, mm-hmm. right? Like Google Maps really helps, right? Like you can, mm-hmm. you can get like much farther and faster than if you were just trying to like only see what was on the ground. Um, it's not the best example because there it's like, well, you definitely need to, to be able to see out your window all the time. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's kind of a, a weird thing. I think you, you need both and it's probably varies a lot from like intervention to intervention. Like some things are going to be a lot more like, Hey, you really need to be there. And then other things are going to be less. So, mm-hmm. yeah. I want to get back to AI uh, for a second because mm. you started both nonlinear and super linear, which I believe are your current main focuses in life. Um, and can you, can you explain what they are? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so super linear is a, um, like a prize platform, um, for basically like right now we're trying to get more people working on AI safety stuff mm-hmm. and get like, be able to um, like the, the thing I'm most excited about for the prize platform is that right now, if you're like, okay, AI safety is the most important thing or like, like what I want to work on um, now, what? And it's, there's just this big, like, I don't know, like, <laughs> like, can you do ML, like technical work. And if you can't, like, I guess you could be an ops person. I don't know. Like, <laughs> it's just like, it's not great. Um, and, and even if you want to go into technical work, it's still really unclear what to do. And this is basically a way to, to put um, price signals on things and to be able to actually see, you like go onto the website and find the things where it's like, wow, there's like tons of money in this. Like people really want this to happen. This is like, this is probably like a really important thing to work on. Um, and uh, like other things that are really great about uh, prizes compared to say um, just getting a regular job or um, uh, more like grants is that with a prize, um, uh, well, for another thing, what we have is that um, people can top up existing prizes. So if you look at a prize and you're like, man, this is like really important. Somebody should definitely do this. Like I'm going to add an extra like thousand dollars here or something to make it so it's more likely that people do it. Mm. Um yeah. And so you can have this thing where it's like even more price, like uh, price signals. Right. So, and, um, and also a way that people who are in earning to give and like right now in AI safety, if you are doing earning to give, um, it's really hard to find places to donate to, um, which, Hey, that's like a good, good problem to have. But, uh, this is like a way that you can just like put it into a lot of things. And then also from the donor perspective, it's great because you only pay if it works out, mm. you don't have to actually pay if like, if somebody tries something and it doesn't work, you don't pay, right? Yeah. Like, so it's like, it's very low risk from the funder perspective. Um, it also allows, I think right now, a huge problem with EA is that um, there's a lot of people get really excited about it. They're like, yeah, like I really want to do something. And there's like very few jobs in the movement and they are ridiculously competitive. Like just, it's absurd how competitive they are. Um, and so even if you're a fantastic um, applicant, like it's really hard to get in. And this is a way for people to be able to, um, to prove themselves without having to get a job. Right. Mm. So you can go and like, actually like go and like win this prize. And you can like say like, Hey, look, like I did this thing that was really hard. Like I won the Truman prize or whatever and, um, or whatever, what have you. And, um, you can, you can do all these things to, to prove yourself. And then also, even if it's not that you want a full-time job, this is just a way to find things that you could do 
that are like part-time, right? So you can be like, oh, hey, I could definitely like read this book and like, you know, write up a summary of it or like, you know, there's ways to contribute that um, has some sort of prioritization thing. So like there have been some people who've tried to like make like a list of um, uh, um, like ways to volunteer or something, um, but there's no prioritization. It's just kind of like this giant list. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of like, imagine you have the internet and like you had no Google, there's no way to prioritize. You're just like, um, <laughs> it's not very useful. Um, yeah, so that's really exciting. Um, that's like getting rolling. And we have like two, two aspects of that might be, or like, a, um, so one aspect that's relevant to listeners is that we're also setting up like, um, grant, like re-grantors. Um, so people who can make their own bounties. So like, um, if you have like a lot of ideas, you're like, oh yeah, I'd like to do this or that or whatever. Um, you can apply. And if we like your ideas, we can actually give you a budget that then you can start making your own prizes and bounties for. Um, Ooh. yeah. And if, yeah. Um, cause we're, we're really big on decentralization. I think that, um, right now EA is way too centralized in terms of, uh, there's just like a handful of power sources. And it's like, no, no, no. We didn't want to like we don't know what is going to work for AI safety. We're like in totally in the dark. So we need to explore. We need to have a lot of people trying a lot of things. Mm -hmm. Centralization only makes sense if we have like a lot of expertise and um, nobody knows, not even Eliezer, like Yudkowsky knows. And he's like, like the, 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 the founder of the whole thing, you know? Um, and uh, yeah, so um, there's that. And the other thing I really like about this is I really like the idea of having like, um, just making like bounty hunting, being, I mean, like, that's just fucking cool, right? Like, it's like, yeah, I'm like a bounty hunter. But then, <laughs> but then also having it be like a, if you're part of like an EA group or something, you can imagine having like, you know, like every other week or once a month or something, and we like get together and like try and win some bounties. Yeah. And we just go through and like, yeah, like, <laughs> so have a bounty puzzles together. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So there is, so that's really exciting. Puzzle. there is this puzzle component. I notice people who are really into computers or math, oftentimes they tend to love puzzles. Like, I, I, it seems to be a significant overlap. So you're kind of giving people all these puzzles, all these like bounties to fill out, which is, which is different than having a job. It's not like, it's so much different than like, I'm going to pay you $50 an hour and you're just going to work for me and you just work and maybe you get a bonus at the end of the year. Like it's, it's such a different circuitry. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah. And actually um, for a long time internally where I was calling it the nerd sniping project. Um. <laughs> We gotta be nerd snipe people into to working on like cooler problems. So yeah, so that's like the that's super linear. Nonlinear is kind of like the umbrella um organization, like super linear is under nonlinear. Um and then we're just also um so it's interesting. So we were originally setting up to be another incubator, um, much more like a charity entrepreneurship, which was my previous uh charity um that's like an incubator for near-term stuff. Um right now we're actually like I mean, so I, I usually don't think of things in terms of things like incubator or whatever. I think of it like, oh, hey, I'm trying to like increase the number of people who are starting good organizations or good projects in the movement. Um, and, uh, you know, incubation is one of those ways to do it, which is that you, hey, like you find good people, you like train them up on how to start things. Um, and, uh, but I'm moving more towards, um, instead of having like the full like training system is more, okay, so um and also things change all the time this is why i call myself not why uh, i called it nonlinear. is uh nonlinear is just uh it's very broad it could be anything right and i'm like excellent <laughs> i don't want to be stuck on one thing um and uh so it's kind of evolving right now it's like um okay so so one thing is which things to start 
right? So like, how do you, how do you prioritize which interventions to, to start? And um, right now, one of the things we're working on is we're trying to create something that's basically like a, it's evolving a lot over time, but like the, the basic idea is creating like a decentralized, like automatic prioritization system so that it prioritizes on its own again, without me, I don't have to do anything. It's the ideal um, where um, we have a, a list of ideas that um, uh, you could start and, um, and then you have, and like try and make it like basically anybody can add their own ideas that they want. Um, and then have, and this is the, the thing that makes it um, prioritized well, is um, have, a, have funders go through and list which ideas they'd be excited to fund if the right person started it. Mm. Yeah. And then have like um, also uh, um, mentors go through um, and say which ideas they'd be interested in mentoring if the right person started it. Um, and then how the whole bunch of other things will probably also categorize it by like, Hey, does this require technical skills, not technical skills? Like, uh, is this okay for like a newbie? Like how long does this project take to do? Is it like something we can do in a couple of weeks or is it something I need to dedicate the next 10 years of my life to? Hmm. Um, and, uh, and then what you can do is you can just sort, like if you're like a potential entrepreneur, or if you're a person who wants to start a project, you're like more like kind of like high agency, proactive, um, uh, entrepreneurial type then you can just go to the spreadsheet and then sort by whatever the things you care about are and including like, Hey, are there funders interested in this? And the cool thing about the funding landscape in EA is that, um, like the funders are like some of the most informed and values aligned people, right? Like these are people who spend their whole time thinking about what is the best things to do. And so it's actually like a pretty good filtering system. And then also, I mean, Hey, it's like a hard to fake signal of like offering funding. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and we're thinking as well, I mean, cause we're EAs having like a prediction market, uh, we always want to have a prediction market, uh, what you can do is have people making predictions about which ideas they think will get funded, um, and get started. And this could be just a way to make it way easier. Cause like, okay. So like the way incubators work is they tend to like be like a connector of like, they take people, they take money, they take, um, uh, like mentors and they like connect them together. Right. And so this could be a way to do it like a lot of that just automatically without having to use my particular judgment of like, what do I think the best charities are and who do I think the best people are? Right. Like, so this is like, okay, these people who are potential founders will just go directly to the funders and say like, Hey, like we think we can do this. What do you think? Um, and then the, the, the funder just gets to the side. Right. And so I don't have to be the one who's evaluating all these people and applications or anything. Um, I might set up something where we do, um, where we do some of the initial vetting and then we just send certain people towards the funders or something. Um, but yeah, this could just be a way to have it be way more clear what people want. And then also it gets around this other thing. So in EA, um, especially in long-termism, there's this uh, concern about these things called information hazards or info hazards. And the idea behind this is that there are some sorts of ideas that can be hazardous, that can cause, um, you know, like negative things to happen. So like the classic example is, you know, back in the forties, um, how to build a nuclear weapon, like a nuclear bomb. Like this is an info hazard. Like, don't let that out. If you like, if you let everybody know, it's not going to be great. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah. And so, and, um, and there's modern day things, um, and especially in like AICC, there can be things like, um, uh, so one is just like, if you do certain sorts of work, um, oftentimes not only does it potentially help with safety, but it also speeds up AI development generally, which could be a bad thing if like we haven't figured out safety yet. Um, 
And uh, other things are like, oh, hey, what if you did an outreach org and you're trying to like go and explain to uh, like ML researchers like why AI safety is important, but you do it in such a way that like really turns people off. Yeah. And then they think like, oh, AI. You imagine like somebody who's like um, just like terrible at explaining things and you know just seems like a total crazy person and like they're the ones who are telling everybody. Then everybody might think like, oh, hey, it's just like crazy people. Please. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and so like there's this like big big worry that um, oh wait sorry I'm, I'm talking about info hazards and I'm actually was supposed to be talking about the unilateralist curse which is related but not the same thing sorry let me let me start over here okay so unilateralist curse um, the problem is that okay say there's this thing there's this intervention that's like oh hey like yeah let's go um uh trying to think of anyways I, I won't come up with an example but um, there's this idea that seems at first good. But then you realize, oh, hey, there's like this, this problem with it. It would actually be bad to do it. And say 100 people think of this idea. And like 99 of them realize, oh, hey, there's this bad thing. Actually, I won't do it. Mm-hmm. But then there's like one person who didn't notice that there's the one thing that's bad with it. And they just go ahead anyway. And then it causes a bad thing. Yeah. Right. And the reason it's called the unilateralist curse is like, oh, hey, even if most people d- like realize this would be a bad idea, just one person has to do it. And then it's bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and this can happen with a lot of interventions is people are worried like, oh, well, what if I think it's good, but actually everybody else thinks it's bad and, and like, I'm just mistaken. Right. And so this leads to like tons of EAs not doing anything. They're just like, oh, but I'm worried. Like maybe I'm just being a unilateralist curse person and yada, yada. And, um, and the idea market, this like spreadsheet basically fixes that because you can actually just see, you can see if people said like, Hey, this is a terrible idea. Cause like one of the things we'll allow people to do is say like, Hey, like, I think this could be net negative. It's like, this is like a dangerous idea to do. Um, and then you can just see, and you can be like, Oh, Hey, actually like most people think this is fine. Like one person doesn't like it, but that's okay. Nobody likes all ideas. Like, like there's no idea, especially in EA. There's nobody who likes everything. <laughs> so of course. Mm-hmm. Sounds like one thing we're working on. Um, another thing we're um, thinking of setting up is basically just setting up like um, uh, prizes for starting organizations. So instead of doing like the full incubation where we um, uh, provide training, it's more like, hey, we've identified this idea seems really good. If you come to us with a team, that seems good. Um, and we evaluate it, whatever. We'll give you like X amount of dollars or something. Um, and this could just be like a way to, and then we'll introduce you to the mentors and then you're on your way and like, it's up to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a way to basically do like a lot of the, the, the um, uh, like disproportionate returns kind of thing uh, in terms of like, I'm always thinking like, how can I do the most with like the least amount of time? Mm-hmm. And this is just like really good from that perspective of there could be like a lot of things that get started with like minimal time on my part instead of having to like con- continuously, like, I mean, my original plan way at the beginning of my life was to like, just actually do all the things myself. And now I'm just like, ah, not just <laughs> just doesn't make sense. Uh, a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and the other thing that actually we're just, um, on the, the verge of launching, although actually it might uh, be spent all by the, by the time we actually launch it is, um, uh, so, uh, speaking of mental health, um, stuff. So one of the things we're doing is, um, the working title for, for it right now is the nonlinear support fund. We might change the name. Um, and, uh, it's basically providing um, grants to people to get things that help with either mental health or their productivity if they're working in long-termism. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we're, we're working on exactly like the, the the specific details, but it's looking to be something along the lines of like, hey, like there's a giant list of things that we can provide, like you know, um, uh, therapy, coaching, um, bad lamps, uh, you know, just to improve like um, 
you know, uh, office equipment, that sort of stuff. And um, uh, what we're doing that I'm really excited about for this is that um, most of the time, like technically you can just go to, there's like a, a fund called the EA infrastructure fund mm-hmm. and they provide like meta stuff for like uh, either like, you know, yeah. And um, technically you can apply to them to get like funding to like, you know, go get a therapist or something. Right. But the thing is, is that um, it takes a long time to hear back. Um, and you don't know if you're going to get it or not, or if you qualify. And that's like just like, stressful and scary for most people. Most people don't want to fill out applications and then like not sure if they're going to get it. Mm-hmm. And we're setting ours up to be that it's like an extremely clear and transparent qualification thing. Mm. Um, and uh, where like, and the, and the main thing, that, and this is like the, uh, the insight that I liked was, um, okay, like how do we make sure we give it to people that we think are going to do good stuff with it? We're basically pro- providing like a, you know, an amplification to whatever work you're doing. How do we know if your work is good? Man, that's going to take a while to, to evaluate. However, what if, again, we don't have to do any work. What if we just use existing evaluations, right? So I already trust, like say the infrastructure fund or like FTX or um, SFF is like another big funder. I already trust their judgment. How about we just give it to them? We just give out these like, you know, amplification grants. If you've got a donation from any of them. Like if you got funding from them, they already went through a vetting process. They were already vetted, right? And there you go. So basically like the rules are gonna be like, hey, have you gotten funding from any of these people for working in long-termism in the last year? If you have, and um, I forget what the other qualification was. I mean, oh, and then like basically from like from this approved list of things that like, you know, that you can you can get. Um, and then you can also suggest like things to be added and then we'll decide and then like either add it to the list or not. That's so um, smart. That's so smart. Like you are incredible at creating outsized returns. I'm surprised aw. you haven't been on Tim Ferriss's podcast yet, to be honest. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, Tim, come on. Yeah. <laughs> no, waiting. I can't wait to, yeah. I can't wait to meet him. I guarantee that me and him are going to get along. Yeah. It's going to be great. But oh my god, yeah. absolutely! Your entire life <laughs> yeah. is like the four-hour work week. It's it's wild. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh man. Um, yeah. So so yeah, I'm really excited about this because basically this has like you know infinite room for more funding, and it's like just like this very like simple. Like it's basically like the index fund of long-termism. You can just donate to it. It's like hey, you're just like you know, investing in like the top 500 or whatever, like, you know, just, yeah, it's, a uh, um, yeah. And I'll just like, and it's like pretty, like, it's so, um, low downside risk. Like there's so many things in long-termism where it's like, oh man, maybe we can mess things up. It's like, oh, Hey, we're getting people like therapy and desk chairs. Like, I mean, like, <laughs> like what do you think is going to happen? And yeah, so it's, um, so that's like the other thing that we're doing. And, um, we haven't actually launched it yet because we're just like spending a bunch of time designing the rules and the policies and like making sure everything we're doing is legal, um, uh, laws anyway. Mm. But, um, yeah, um, just making sure it's all like, you know, like setting that up and everything. Um, but, uh, yeah, we, we have like this, uh, page where we just say like, Hey, like we're not ready yet, but you can express your interest. And already the people who set the things is like, we'll probably just run out of money, um, just saying it to them. So we might not even do a big public launch, um, just cause we already got it. And then we'll just go back to, you know, our funders and be like, Hey, it's like worked. What do you think? Like, let's just people want therapy. add more. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. People want therapy. This is not some scary, like weird thing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so like, that's like the other, other big thing. And then the other, um, I mean, so like my general principle, it's like, so we have this like giant, like funnel of ideas coming through and, um, 
you know, if the idea seems like promising enough, then it kind of goes into like either the idea market, if it's like this big thing that needs like a lot of work to do. Um, uh, and, um, like, yeah, if it's something that needs to be like a separate organization or like a big, long project, and then if it's something that's short, um, and that you can do relatively quickly, then we'll just sometimes, and it, that short, you can do it relatively quickly. And then it, it's passive. It doesn't require like lots of ongoing maintenance. And then we'll keep it in-house. So like we have the nonlinear library, um, this is, we just like made like a, a podcast that, um, a passive podcast where, um, <laughs> where it just automatically turns all of the top EA content from like the EA forum, less wrong and alignment forum into audio, into a podcast format. So you can just listen to it on any podcast player and just keep up to date on all the stuff. And we've got like a million different sub channels. Like you can just listen to one of the forums or only listen to like, you know, cause like it comes out with like eight a day or something. Right. Um, and it's like, or you can like find one where it's like, oh, it just comes out once a week or once a day or something. Um, and, uh, you know, or like the top upvoted, uh, episodes or like top upvoted, um, uh, EA forum posts of all time or something. You can just binge those. Um, and yeah, that's great. Like, you know, so, so technically during this podcast, I've already made like, you know, like s seven others or something. So, <laughs> uh, and then that allows also, like, I feel like the, the, um, nonlinear library, and I call it the library instead of a podcast because, um, uh, like I want it to be more, it's like, Oh, Hey, this is like the library. This is the repository of all the books essentially in EA, as opposed to, um, with the podcast, like, yeah, you end up having things like, oh, like you can't have, like, you don't want to have too many episodes and you can't have a library with too many books. Mm. Like, you're like, what? <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. Um, and, uh, what's cool about that is like, I just like, I know for me, like I used to like, I mean, uh, like the EA forum is like, it's basically like the EA, like news or something. I don't know how to describe it. It's like, it's like the central where all EA ideas seem to happen. And, um, I like was hardcore EA and like pretty much all my life. And yeah, I pretty much never read the forum. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's like a bad EA. I was like, oh, I don't want to. And like, now I'm just pretty much always up to date on the forum. Like I'm just like, because I just like listen to it in the morning when I'm getting dressed and like, I can just, you know, like, and like brush my teeth and all that. I just like listen to it. And it's like really good. And I've heard a lot of other people describe it that way. So like, wow. Like, cause like, there's just like all this part of your day that you can't actually be reading with your eyes or you like, you don't particularly feel like it or that sort of stuff. And this just allows it. It's great. Um, so that's like one thing we have. And then what's the other one? Oh yeah. EA houses. Oh, we have the wonderful um, multitasking now. Like we can just go for a walk. Yeah. Like I love that. I go for a walk or I lift weights and I listen to podcasts and not to, yeah. but the EA forum is, it's like, if you think you're smart, go listen to the EA forum or go read the <laughs> EA forum because you will feel like a middling. You will feel, I mean, but it's, it's so much access to really like incredibly deep thinkers who are, this is their life's work. Like you get to have access to their mental models and their, their rationalizations and their research. Like some people have written hundred page, um, you know, theses on like global poverty or nuclear war. And, and you can, you can get the distillation of that in a single post. And so like, if you're looking for ways to become smarter, just go and, and read the EA forums or listen to the podcast. Yeah, no, absolutely. I definitely feel like it's kind of like, um, I think a lot of smart people, they go through this period where they're just like, you know, arguing with people about like whether homeopathy works or something. Mm. And it's just kind of like, you know, you don't get smarter that way. You're just, cause you're, you're, you're not fighting like the really like smart battles. Like, you know, it's like steel sharpens steel. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, if you hang out with the EA community, you're, you're just going to get smarter because, uh, <laughs> you're going to have to, yeah. um, yeah. 
Yeah, so um, so the nonlinear library, and then the other thing that uh, is run in house, um, this is like a more minor thing, um, is like a basically, um, so it's called EA Houses, and um, it's kind of like the super MVP version of um, like an Airbnb for EAs, um, in terms of um, basically, like I was thinking, like oh, like we just got this house, and we're only going to be there for a certain percentage of the year, and for various reasons, we can't rent it out. Um, and we're like, oh, well, what if we could just have like a bunch of EAs stay there and, you know, like have a, have a, a you know, do EA things and have some impact and like, oh, that'd be great. We don't have to do anything. We're just like, well, the house is there. Like, just don't destroy it. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, and then we're like, huh, like, and this, this is always like the, the, the thought process goes in my head. It's like, if I feel, find something good, I'm like, can I scale this? Can we make this bigger? Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, you could totally just set this up so that like, I bet that there's like a bunch of people who have spare space, um, or like, you know, like if it's like a, like a summer house that they're, they're not at for most of the year, or they have like a spare bedroom. They're like one of the EAs who are living in some like, you know, more remote place where like, they've just got lots of room and they'd love some company. And like, you could turn all that spare space into impact mm. by letting like basically people stay there and like giving them like a grant of, of, of room. Right. And, um, I, I'm, I'm calling it renting to give of, uh, <laughs> just to like turning your space into impact. Um, and then other people can have passive impact with their space, right? Um, instead of just me and like our house. And so, um, so yeah, so I set up like the spreadsheet. It's like super simple. Like at some point I'm gonna like, it turned out to be more popular than I was expecting. So I'm like, okay, like, that, like I'm gonna go and like make it better. Um, right now it's just like a super simple spreadsheet where you can like list if you have a house that, and like say like, hey, like, you know, th these are the conditions or whatever. Um, and then also, um, and then if you're a person like, and I think the biggest use case for this is like, so we got the people who have the houses. The next thing is, is um, people can use this as a way to get started on things. So I think that like a lot of times, like you've just finished university, you don't know what you want to do yet. Um, and like one option is to go and like apply to one of the EA funds and see if you can get like a fund to like take you through that time. And then like, you know, figure out what to do. Um, but another thing you do is you can just go to one of the EA houses and stay there for a bit. And just spend some time thinking, like trying to figure out what to do. Like you, it's basically giving everybody in the community like runway. Mm -hmm. um, so you don't have to like, just happen to be like lucky and have parents who are willing to like, like, you know, like put you up for a long time and they don't really care if you're working and stuff like that. Like not like a lot of people don't have that, right? Like most people don't, right? And so you kind of want to have like, so it's giving runway. And it's also giving um, more runway way to like start things. So it's like you can experiment. You can be like, oh, hey, like maybe... What if I want to learn how to code? Like, let's try that. Oh, that's not working. Like, maybe let's try, um, yeah, like, you know, making podcasts or something. Like, let's try that. And like, it basically just gives everybody like an easygoing parents who are willing to like set you up in your room for a while to figure things out. Um, so, sorry, does this, does this fund the, does this pay for people's rent? Well, yeah. So basically it's, um, people list their houses. Um, if they're willing to, so some people charge, right? So some people are like, oh, hey, you can like, you know, come live with me here and it costs this much, right? Mm -hmm. um, a lot of them are giving it away for free. For free, yeah, okay. Yeah, and so they're saying like, hey, yeah, you can come live here if you're doing EA stuff. Like if you're doing stuff that you think is like, you know, potentially like helping the world, yeah. Cool. Yeah. And, and like one of the best ways to, I mean, every great thinker, if you if you look back, they have they have their own social network of other great thinkers, and so for EA, like probably one of the most important things that we can do, and we're we're so focused um, in what I would call a masculine energy, oftentimes, like I think just you know it's kind of just natural that society 
moves towards this where like we I, I would say a masculine energy is something like a needle point like it's it's like i'm gonna focus on ea i'm gonna uh, on on ai for instance i'm gonna like research this very specific part of ai safety whereas i i keep seeing you introducing a feminine energy like um like connecting communities together and like even even with your um even with super linear it's like you're figuring out ways that people i don't even know if you realize it but it's like you've said how can we motivate people differently than like because some people are motivated by puzzles and some people are motivated by jobs so how do we get more of those people who are motivated by puzzles and like you're thinking about how people are motivated it's like you're you're not hyper focusing instead you're like become you you have this like broader energy that is bringing more people into it and together and that is i mean of course that's so important i'm, I'm so glad you're doing the work that you're doing oh thank you yeah um yeah, it's kind of interesting. Yeah, I, I always like. Yeah, it is interesting to think of. Like, I don't. I definitely don't tend to think of myself as like man, like woman or man or anything. Like, usually in my my day to day. But like, um, yeah, it does be funny. Like sometimes people are like, oh, like um, uh, what is it like to be in like a male dominated field? And I'm all like, it's great. It's the most. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like more people should do it, but then it wouldn't be male dominated anymore. And then I would like. <laughs> I feel like people have this thing, like, okay, so for one thing, like, at least, like, okay, so uh, there's a couple things. One is, like, the EA movement is, like, I mean, it's, like, I actually just found that the charity sector as a whole is, like, I mean, like, if you're in, if you're around nice people, like, it's just, like, I do think that it's, like, you're just less likely to have sexism. I don't know. Um, uh, if anything, I feel like there's probably, like, a, a bit more, like, it's, like, more of an advantage because, like, I do think there's, like, a bunch of people who were, like, oh, hey, like, I want to do, like, um, affirmative action, whatever stuff. And so you get, like, disproportionately more speaker engagements. And at first I was, like, hmm, I don't know how I feel about that. Like, um, but then I was, like, well, I'll take it. Like, yeah. whatever. It's great. Uh, <laughs> excellent. <laughs> take whatever advantage I can get. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And people are just super nice. I've never noticed anything wrong. And even actually in AI safety, it was weird is that all of the researchers, like, by far, super male dominant, it's, like, 95 percent or something it's not it's not that i'm making up numbers but that's like it's generally what i see um in terms of researchers but in terms of power position it's actually disproportionately female which is a weird thing so i mean there's obviously me running non-linear um there's uh the the main people in charge of um ai at openfill as far as i can tell are women um the the people the people who are in charge of longview which is another big funder in ai is women um and then um, same with the EA uh, Long-Term as Future Fund. I think that's like the main person in charge of the, the long-term side of things is a woman. Um, I think all the funding is coming from women, hmm. um, which is uh, you know, an interesting thing. I don't know what happened there, but, uh, um, but yeah. And like, I just haven't noticed. It's never been a problem. It's never been like, a, oh my God, like people don't take you as seriously or something. Um, yeah. I mean, you're, it's, it's very meritocratic. I mean, EA is, yeah, like it's filled with autists and like autists are like, no, you're judged based off of like <laughs> your outputs. <laughs> okay. So yeah. I have, I have a one, we we're about to wrap up, but uh, I have one question from a person on the EA forum. I believe, I don't know how, I'm sorry. I'm going to butcher your name. Tejas Subramaniam or Tejas, I don't know. Um, and so one of the questions he wrote is how worried should we be about suspicious converge Convergence between AI safety being one of the most interesting slash emotionally compelling questions to think about, and it being the most pressing problem. There used to be a lot of discussion around 2015 about how it seemed like people were working on AI safety because it's really fun and interesting to think about, rather than because it's actually pressing. 
I think that argument is pretty clearly false, but I'd be curious how she views this post as interacting with those concerns. And I've just realized that you might not have enough time to answer this question and we can cut this part out if you'd like. <laughs> but if you have a few minutes, then answer it. If not, we can just end. Oh, for sure, for sure. Um, yeah, so I think, um, so for the, um, so the post he's referring to there, or she, um, is, uh, um, I wrote this post about uh, like why I find AI safety compelling uh, or emotionally compelling. And uh, the interesting thing with that is like, the reason I wrote it was because I was pushing against the fact that they usually people are just totally avoiding the emotionally compelling bit. Like I think that in EA, and I think this is what makes EA great is that like, okay, we're not doing things based on being emotionally compelling. We're focused on like, hey, let's, let, let's just do the math, figure out what the highest impact thing is and do that thing. And I think that's how most people got to AI safety. Cause like, it's just, that that is not the thing that first comes to mind if you're like a, a person who's altruistic. Usually it starts something local or like, like global poverty makes way more sense. Um, and uh, and then AI, you're like, what? Like most people actually like, um, this is actually in response to, um, there's another post, I think it was Michelle Hutchinson, where she was talking about how she didn't find AI safety compelling, like emotionally compelling. And like, here was her list of ways to like, like still work anyways or something. I forget exactly what it was. And I remember reading that and thinking like, that's weird. Cause I always think it's very emotionally compelling um, myself. And so I decided to write it up because I was hoping to like get other people like to try and like make up for the fact that everything is just so dry. And like, I just like, when I'm at an EAG, I'll find like a lot of people who are like, I think that AI safety is the most important thing, but I just find it too boring. And like, you know, like uninteresting, <laughs> like just not emotionally compelling. And so I'm not going to work on it. And they work on like global poverty or animals instead. And I'm like, no, like I'm trying to make it. So I'm, I'm actually trying to go against, like, I think that for me, like if you, if you actually line up the, the cause areas, like my, my most emotionally compelling cause area is animal rights, um, way more than AI safety. And then, um, and then it's AI safety, then it's, uh, poverty. Um, and, um, but uh, like I was trying to like help people see why I found it more emotionally compelling to work in AI safety to try and like go against this thing of okay most of the time if you care about AI safety and you look into it it's not interesting at all it's really weird well I mean it's interesting to a lot of people I suppose but but to me at least when I look at it it's like this is incomprehensible math and like really weird philosophical problems that like I'm just like how is this connected to anything I don't understand like. I think that I think that originally, maybe back in 2015, or maybe like back in 2010 or something, um, if you cared about AI safety, you just got to think about cool things like, oh man, what sort of utopia do we want? Do we want it to be a libertarian utopia or more of like a uh, egalitarian utopia? Like all sorts of things, right? Um, and now, like I think that that's just true when um, a field is just beginning and there's like nothing. Um, you don't have to read all the backlog. You don't have to get to the point where you're like now like a weird PhD student studying like how many like mm. rodents there are in Ireland or something. Yeah. Um, and like, uh, so, so basically like, but now it's like, hey, to to contribute and to be thinking about these things. There's like all this backlog. There's like, um, and it's quite complicated and hard. And um, and uh, I mean, most of my day in a way, it's actually really similar to my, how my days were spent in like long, uh, in near-termism with like global poverty or animal rights of just uh you know, mostly there's a lot of answering emails and <laughs> being in meetings and stuff. <laughs> like, um, but yeah, like I, that, that was my, my context was there's not enough emotional stuff. Like we, we want to come here through reason, but then the, if we come here through reason, we want to like be able to keep staying with, um, with our emotions. Like, um, for, um, when I was working in global poverty animal rights, I just like, whenever I found like a good, 
video about, um, like I'd find like a good UNICEF ad about poverty or like some like really compelling factory farm footage. Um, I would set in my calendar to send to my inbox once every like few months. So I'd be reminded and each day, like it stopped being so abstract and it became more like, oh, hey, this is why I'm doing this, this is why I care. And so I was trying to get that article to be a bit more like that. It's like, okay, I can at least read this later. And then like, when I'm feeling really unmotivated, I can read this and be like, oh yeah, okay, let's go, let's do it. So that was the thing. I'm not sure if that answered the question, but I, I think it did. Anyways, I think it does. can always message me later. There's this, uh, there's this constant question I have of how to, how to maintain motivation for myself. And it, it, it becomes fairly apparent to me that if I'm forcing myself to do something, it, it just, it's way more energy. I get way less done. And so nowadays I'm focusing on the question of how can I make this an obsession? Like if I'm working mm. on podcast, how can I obsess over this? To, and then, and then I'm like, oh, that's huh. because I'm kind of half-assing the podcast. And now I want to go and research ways to make it a better podcast, like to be a better interviewer, to, to edit better, something like that. And so how can I obsess over this question is so important to me. And I think that's exactly what you're doing. You're, you're allowing people to have that emotional component that just drives them forward where they don't have to go through a grind. Yeah. Well, I like that. I like that. I'm going to, I'm going to steal that. That's okay. like a great way to think about things. So, yeah. <laughs> All right. I'm going to wrap up here. Uh, this, this might've been the, the, my favorite podcast. So thank you so much for joining me. Ah, <laughs> thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. Yeah. Future viewers who have watched her Tim Ferriss episode and have come back to, <laughs> to look at her previous interviews. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Welcome. Um, yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much, Cat Woods. Uh, yeah, good luck on your journeys. I hope you continue to optimize. <laughs> Can't stop me. Thank you so much. All right, see you later. All right. See ya. All right.